Welcome back to another episode of Sales with Aslan, our weekly therapy session for those who sell for a living and those who help those who sell for a living. And I think I have a first on our show this week. I've got a gentleman that I found, or he found me, I can't remember how we met, Mike Reddington, a certified forensic interviewer. And you should all be going, ooh. And he's also CEO of Inquasive. He's got a book coming out in the fall. And I am really looking forward to talking to a certified forensic interviewer for my first time. Welcome, Michael. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. <laughs> so good to, to have you and see your face. I know uh, this is a audio podcast, so no one else can see you, but uh, it's good to have you aboard. And uh, we're going to get into everything uh, about uh, sort of forensic interviewing and how that applies to sellers and, and sales leaders alike. But first, we start every show of Ales with Aslan with an ale or some sort of beer. And I think uh, you've got something frosty, cold and refreshing in front of you. I do. I do. I try not to travel far without it. All right. Tell me about it. What you got? Well, I know it's ales, but I'm a sucker for a stout. So for me, it starts and ends with Guinness. So I have myself a a frosty pint of vitamin G here to help aid our conversation. You know, I, um, I haven't had a Guinness in a while, but I used to have to travel to Galway, Ireland for work. Mm-hmm. And one time on the flight over, I was so sick. I just was just, you know, when you get that head cold and you just feel like going to bed, we land, the group is there and they say, hey, let's just go out for one Guinness. And I'm like, I, I just am not up for it. I, I just can't do it. They're like, just one. Anyway, one led to two, which might've led to three. I can't remember. Next day I woke up, I felt great. And I said, what is in Guinness that just solved whatever problem I was having? But that's what you're talking about. There's vitamins in there or something. It's, uh, I mean, the joke for different audiences, right? But it's God's gifts. It we is. Should, we should appreciate it and enjoy it for what it is. Absolutely. It's fabulous. And I'm happy you're having that. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm, I think last week I did a uh, proclamation uh, brewery uh, edition. And this week I've gone back to proclamation. This one's called Are You Bored Yet? I thought that was an interesting title for a beer or something you would, you would uh, be interested in. It's a dry hop beer. It's five and a half percent alcohol. And the beer was brewed with a few rice varietals and a little organic cane sugar to help dry it out. Then it was lightly dry hopped, conditioned on a bunch of pineapples and oranges and carved up to a nice high level. The result is a dry, light and refreshing chugger. (laughs) There you go. Cheers. Cheers. Slancha, should I mm. say. So good. So good. Well, Michael, so, you know, by way of introduction, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of how you got into this profession uh, as, as far back as you did? I appreciate you asking. I'm Mike and I drink Guinness. I think that's probably a great place to start. <laughs> it clearly. sure is. Uh, professionally, I started out as a special education school teacher and baseball coach and thought that would be all I would ever do and fell victim to peer pressure, had some friends recommend the financial industry where I lasted for two years, one month and two days before deciding transition was necessary. Mm. So I'm back to school to get a business degree, juggled any number of jobs and accidentally ended up in the field of investigations. And I worked for a a district manager at the time who either believed in me or was lazy and didn't want to come to where I was to conduct investigations anymore, one or the other, and put me in charge of having conversations with employees who, as I like to say, made regrettable decisions. They mostly weren't bad people, just, you know, they'd done things they probably shouldn't have. 
And at that time is really where I started to fall in love with the process of interrogation. And I know when people hear interrogation, they either say, cool, tell me more or stay the hell away from me. Yes. So really, whichever somebody's reaction was to that, the techniques that I come from are purely non-confrontational, rapport-based, because you'll be surprised what people will tell you when you actually treat them with respect and encourage them to protect their self-image and really are nothing like what they've seen on TV or, or seen on the news. So for me, it wasn't just the technique that was fascinating, the first technique, and it wasn't even just getting people to say, I did it. Like for many car mechanics, it was really about tearing the process apart and understanding the, the cognitive process that people experience that caused them to say and do things that when they woke up that morning, they thought were bad ideas. Mm-hmm. And that led me to achieve my certified forensic interviewer designation. It led me to really dive into business communication research, really across the spectrum of business communication. And in doing so, I came across two key realizations. The first is that the very best leaders and the very best interrogators capitalize on the same two core skills, vision and influence. And the second, which may be more apropos for our audience, is the cognitive process that interrogation suspects experience when they truthfully commit to saying I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that employees experience when they commit to saying I'll do it and customers experience when they commit to saying I'll buy it. I love this. So I let I, I like the way this is laying out. Let's go back to the vision and influence piece first, and then we'll come back to the cognitive side. Um, I, I had a guy on um, a few weeks back uh, that was talking about the academic side of questioning, and I and I think we're going to really get into that cognitive side. I think that's very interesting. But I'm really intrigued by this idea of vision and influence because you and I don't know each other very well, and I don't think you know our company very well. But you know that we deal with this idea of there's not a job in the world that I can think of where you don't have to influence somebody to do something sometimes, right? Um, there's probably not a relationship in your life where you don't have to exhibit some ability to influence. And in order, you know, at least what we believe, and I think it sounds like you believe, um, influence is only possible when your audience is receptive to your influence. Um, I'll just go back to something I think I heard you say in the very beginning, um, your employees, when you were working on this, had to feel like they were in a safe safe environment to be able to answer questions. Uh, It's not like, you know, the SVU interviews we see on on Law and Order, right, where they've got the bright light and you're, you know, where were you on the night of the 24th? It's more of this, because I want to try to help you through this process, I'm going to ask you a few questions type of thing. Am I, am I getting that right? Is that what I'm understanding? You are. You're right there. And to quickly confess, where I was on the night of the 24th was buying the Guinness I would need for this conversation. <laughs> so now, now you can say you got your confession. Um, there but we go. That, that idea of safety is 100% correct. And it's not, it's not necessarily physical safety, although that's certainly a part of it, and, you know, especially when you think of other operational fields where people conduct investigative interviews and interrogations. And I know sometimes people might laugh or scoff at the concept of you know, emotional safety because it gets talked about so much. That plays in too, but really what we're talking about is making sure they feel that their self-images are safe. that they can admit to information, they can share information, they can open up, they can become vulnerable, they can accept potential consequences and do all of that without feeling like they have to violate or compromise their self-image. And that really is perhaps the biggest key. Excellent, excellent. So we we completely agree that influence is, is an important part 
and we all have to have that. Talk to me about the vision piece of that statement. What do you mean by uh, vision and, and how does it play itself out and how does it relate to what we're, you know, the people we're talking to today, sales reps and sales managers? Twofold. Um, one is, you know, big picture thinking, understanding, you know, where we're trying to get to long-term, balancing the long game with the short game, you know, for people in the, in the sales industry, every week, month, quarter, looking at their numbers, looking at their funnel, thinking about what deals they have to close, where they have to be, but balancing that with the long-term process of earning, establishing, and maintaining relationships. And particularly in that earning piece, it's easy to screw that up. Earning the relationship can be the hardest thing to do. And often if we're just focused on our numbers, we're not focusing on the behaviors and the communication steps necessary to earn the relationship along the way. Then when we're in the conversations, it's really about maintaining a goal-oriented mindset. One of the things that we talk about from an observation standpoint is observing for intelligence, not information. In, a lot of times people can go into these conversations with a really a closed mindset. If I can get them to say these two or three things, then I can fit them into this box where I can tell them they have a problem and this is the solution for it. And yeah. if, if we go in with that kind of mindset, there's all kinds of intelligence we might be listening, other opportunities, other problems, feelings, emotions, things that we can tie into. And in order to really increase our influence, earn the trust and establish the rapport necessary to open up the conversation, we really have to have that goal-oriented mindset. So going into each conversation thinking, what is really our long-term goal here, not the short-term goal, and making sure everything we say and do puts us a step closer to achieving the long-term goals instead of consistently running into brick walls trying to force the short-term. Well, and I think, I think you really dovetailed nicely into, into how we think alike on this in terms of, you know, Aslan training and development, because any of those folks that are listening that have been through our program, we, we talk about this other centered approach to, to selling is, is not complicated. It really starts with, if I'm trying to help you solve a problem, Michael, as my customer, then the, the way that if that's my long goal, that's my end goal, the way I treat you throughout that process should always be a way to advance the ball toward that goal, right? Which is, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make my quarterly goal. I don't have commission breath because all I really care about is helping you solve a problem you're trying to solve. And by the way, it may not involve my product. And that's the part that sales managers just gasp at when I say it, but is every product a fit for every client? No, you just said it. You can't fit every customer into this box that is your solution. You just can't. So why go in thinking that way? If we have an open and honest conversation about what you're trying to achieve and I happen to be part of that solution, we'll get there, right? We'll figure that piece out. I love that. So, so long-term and short-term goals, that's all part of that vision statement. Um, anything else on vision and influence before we move and tra traverse our way over to the cognitive side? Yeah, and perhaps this will be the bridge. We've mentioned it a couple times, but it really does come down to helping somebody protect their self-image. When we get into any situation, our brains are literally hardwired to prefer our ideas over others. Our brains are literally hardwired to resist outside information and outside efforts. You know, especially when we talk about selling, influence is not about pitching. It is not about convincing. It is not about debating. It really is about educating and allowing people to protect that self-image as they begin to integrate new information and change their perspective. 
if people buy into social judgment theory, the closer somebody's idea is tied to their self-image, the more we try to move them from that, the more it works as a boomerang effect and really just reinforces it. So we can hit them with all of this wonderful rational information that's true and accurate, but it ends up working against us. So really understanding how we can help lead them through that process is critical. And I'll say one more thing and pause for you, really to make that bridge when we think about how to prepare ourselves for that, we don't stop and ask ourselves, why should someone commit to what we want them to commit to? Because yeah. when we do, we're transposing our perspective onto them. We actually stop and ask ourselves, why shouldn't they? Yeah. And it's not about being, you know, expecting failure or being negative or fatalistic. It's really about compartmentalizing our biases as much as possible, considering from their perspective, all of the reasons why they may not or might not have already committed to what we want them to commit to, and then embracing those answers and using it to our advantage in how we prepare and execute the conversation. I love this. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's funny that you even talk about bridges, because if you've ever seen any of our material, we always talk about the client has a destination, something in the future that they see as their future and their present doesn't match that. There's got to be some bridge over some chasm to be able to get them to where they're trying to go. Uh, and you kind of illustrated that. You also just touched on this idea of no matter how logical uh, an argument by a sales rep or anybody that's trying to influence might be, um, you know, if that person's not receptive to you as a sales rep or you or the topic that you're trying to talk about, they will never absorb your opinion. They will never take your opinion as, as, as gospel, if you will. Um, we talk about the two sides of the brain kind of weighing in on that, right? There's, the, there's always an emotional side and there's always a logical side. And if you've ever bought like, you know, a big purchase like a house or a, um, you know, a car, you can always justify with logic that which you really want with emotion, right? Uh, the, the, the converse is probably true. You have to have an emotional buy-in to make a big decision. Logic alone will not get you there. So both sides of the brain have to be engaged. I don't know how you feel about that. No, it's 100% true. We are, all of our decisions have an emotional component. All yeah. of them. There was a research study done where people had traumatic brain injuries. So literally their limbic system no longer functioned. And they basically lived in a never-ending pro-con list. They could get themselves off the fence, but they really couldn't get themselves off. So there's, a, there's at least an emotional kicker into every, every decision that we make. And you're 100% right. The one thing our brain dislikes the most is discomfort. Mm -hmm. So if we think, say, or do anything that we believe is outside of our self-image, we are going to immediately begin to justify it to bring it back in line and get rid of that discomfort and move on about our day. Excellent. All right. So actually that logic emotion thing was probably a good transition. Let's move over to this, this whole cognitive side um, and, and talk a little bit in more detail. Uh, and, and even if you've, if you've got background in, in terms of how that, that part of your, your, um, you know, your bailiwick came, came to be, talk about the cognitive side of questioning and, and, and human communication. I, there's a bunch of different ways we could go with that. I guess I'll start here, really, where we look at the some of the analogies between interview and interrogation and sales, business development. Yep. Um, everybody that's listening to this podcast, I'm assuming, whether they're from the United States or not, is familiar with the Miranda warning. Mm -hmm. If you've watched one episode of any police television, or maybe, who knows, had the opportunity to bump up against a police officer at some point in your life, you have heard you have the right to remain silent. Because yes. everything you say can and will be held against you and you have the right to an attorney, da, da, da. 
oftentimes as uh, business development professionals, we've got to stop and realize that our customers have been Mirandized as well. Yes. Because a lifetime of making purchases has taught them that they have the right to remain silent because anything they say or do will be used against them at their sales professional's very first opportunity. They know that. When they share information with us, we're loading our proverbial guns so we can shoot our metaphorical bullets back at them when we think it will help us close a deal. So to tie back in, you know, they're more, they're supposed to be hesitant to share information with us. Mm -hmm. Sharing a a great relationship or an obvious fit or some of these other things that they should be predisposed to hold information back. So in those situations, there are, so we'll do this. There are seven phases that we experience in potentially contentious conversations. And by potentially contentious, I don't mean that they're going to get out of hand. I just mean that we have at least two people with two varying perspectives and there's enough tinder here that if someone drops a spark, it could light. And really the first phase of that is the pre-conversation where we take our whole life history and all of our expectations into these conversations. And then those expectations could be positive, negative, or neutral. And we literally, people react the strongest to what they see and hear first. So research has shown within a hundred milliseconds, we are looking for the very first verbal or nonverbal indication that our expectations have either been validated or violated. Mm. So, the second phase being the introduction, you know, we talk about literally from the word hello, everything we think, say, and do should create that end result that we're looking for, that relationship that we talked about. So properly managing the introduction to work towards overcoming any potential negative expectations and set the tone for the conversation. Then we need to realize that once we start talking, yes, they're listening to us, but they're listening to figure out what's this all about? What's this mean to them? Where is this going? They've got like a filter, right? Based on their preconceived notions. Yeah. Yes, sir. So once they feel like, you know, the slot machine is at a jackpot, they figured something important out, then they transition into this period of, you know, internal monologue and self-conversation. Okay, here's here's where we're at. Here's what we're doing. And then they start determining, what am I going to say? When am I going to say it? And under what conditions is it okay? We've all negotiated with ourselves in conversations. All right, fine. I'll give him this information, but he's got to say this. He's got to treat me like that. He's got to offer here. If I hear something that triggers, I'll share it. Once they make the determination, then okay, they'll enter the conversation. Once they've entered the conversation, that's not a done deal. They still have the opportunity to choose to continue or exit the conversation. And then we have the all important post-conversation follow-up. Because no matter what active listening material anybody has ever been exposed to, there is only one way to prove to somebody beyond a shadow of a doubt that you listen to them. And that is follow up after the conversation. Great point. Yeah. So when you look at cycling through those seven stages, and and really stages three through six are rinse and repeat. People can go through those stages any number of times during a conversation. How we prepare for, acknowledge, and address those as we go through can have a real significant impact on the commitment that we wind up with. And I love, I love the way you ended that because when I just remember 20 years ago when we were running sales teams back at APC, we, we used to talk about the number one rule in sales is do what you say you're going to do. In other words, if you said the call ended at three and you said, by the end of the day, I will get you this proposal and you send it the next day or the day after, you've already violated any credibility you might've had, right? It's do what you say you're gonna do. And you, that follow-up is, is 
I hadn't thought of it in the, in the, in the seven phases you broke out, but that is so paramount to, you, you know, your long-term reputation with that rep and the trust that you've built, not rep, but with the, with the client. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Very good. All right. Um, so we've talked about vision and in, in, uh, in influence, we've talked about the cognitive side. Um, you know, I know you've got a book coming out, you know, I don't know if it's too early to share, but you, is, is some of this stuff what you're writing about? Because you know, you've got a lot of knowledge about human behavior and, and, and interrogation techniques. And t- talk a little bit about, you know, what inspired you to write the book? Well, it, yes, this and, and more is in the yeah. book. And really the book, book focuses on disciplined listening. And disciplined listening really involves taking a strategic, goal-oriented approach to our conversations where we are looking to identify new opportunities to increase value. It's not about catching somebody lying. It's not about uncovering the truth. It's about connecting, using our observations to connect with somebody at a deeper level to unlock unanticipated value and create stronger agreements and and stronger relationships. That's really what we're focusing on. So yes, I mean, what we talked about now is is a small part, but, but certainly will be explained in much greater depth. And to the point you just made previously about trust, it's important for people to realize that there is a big difference between trust and faith, all religious connotations aside. Mm-hmm. Generally, we have trust in things that we have tangible experience with. I've experienced it myself, so I know it to be true. Mm-hmm. Or somebody I trust through previous experience tells me to trust it, so therefore I do. Faith, generally, is something that we believe in, yet lack the tangible evidence. And to your point about establishing trust, you hit the, like the simple cornerstone rule. If we, do, if we do what we say and say what we do, or it's the other way, right? If we say what we'll do and then do what we say, yeah. now we are creating trust. We're giving people ex- tangible experiences to validate our trustworthiness. But if we refer to ourselves as trusted advisors and tell people, don't worry, if we say we'll do something and then we don't, now we're trading on faith, not trust. And that is a much, much greater mountain to get somebody to try to climb than providing them the tangible evidence along the way. And that opportunity gets lost too often. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. I'm not, I hadn't thought of trust and faith in that regard, but trust being the tangible thing I've seen, experienced, felt, it's like... Then there's doubting Thomas from the Bible, right? He he didn't believe what he saw until he actually touched the wounds of Jesus, right? And uh, and you know, so the rest had faith; they all believed, right? So that there's a, a very very good difference between trust and faith. What is faith, from a communication standpoint, deliver that trust doesn't, in your opinion? Uh, not much, you know. Yeah. Really, I mean, faith is the from a communication standpoint. Faith is the lesser of the two. Yeah. From, from a communication, st- and this is where we want to stay clear of the religious connotations. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, but trust is established. It's verified. It's tangible. Gotcha. Trust equity builds the opportunity for us to screw up. Yeah. <laughs> And I was working with a client and I'd been working with them thankfully for two years. And literally if we had an engagement on Monday, it started at uh, nine and Wednesday started at eight. Well, I was teaching in New Orleans on Tuesday. Didn't get in until like 1.30 in the morning. So when my wife said, what time do you have to be to my engagement the next morning? I said, it's Wednesday, eight o'clock, went to sleep. Got up, walked a dog, had my, my wife make breakfast. I'm on the road. Their VP calls me, I'm like a half hour away. He's like, hey man, where are you? Are you okay? Uh, <laughs> so I slalom my way through North Carolina traffic in order to get there. And thankfully, when I got there, his whole team was still sitting in the seat. And even better, they all made fun of me as I walked to the front of the room. 
what that tells me is I'd worked with them long enough so yeah. that they had trust in the fact that I probably did have a reasonable excuse. I would still add value to their morning and I wasn't disrespecting them. <laughs> if this was early in the relationship, yes. they probably would have pieced out. If they were in the room, they wouldn't have been making fun of me. They would have been giving me the mean mug as I came in for wasting a half hour of their morning. And any faith that they may have had that I would provide them value would have been destroyed. So the little things we say and do over a period of time, not only build the trust equity, which is important for us to train on our relationships, build our reputations, but it builds in a safety cushion for when we inevitably screw up. Yeah, no, that's, that's really important. And, and I love that distinction. You know, faith in a religion is one thing. Faith in another person, you know, in a business setting especially, um, you know, you got to earn that trust. And I, and I like that distinction that you made. That's a, that's a really good story. I'm sure there's, there's many sales reps listening to this in their car or while they're jogging going, oh, I did that once. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe they had the equity or maybe they didn't. Uh, we've, all, we've all seen that. All right. I mean, that, that, that's a really good uh, core group of, of stuff. But I would imagine our listeners would love to hear, do you have any stories or funny uh, things that you uncovered in some sort of interrogation, anything that you just remember being, you know, obviously names and companies aside, yeah, anything yeah. that just sticks out from, uh, from this job you've been doing for so long? Yeah, I've got several. Um, I, what's entertaining to me and what's entertaining to others may be different. Yeah. Um, but Let's try know, one. There was, there was one case where um, a federal agency had been unable to get – they had five suspects that were responsible for one of the five. They didn't know who yeah. one of the five was responsible for stealing some firearms. Uh, the federal agents were unable to, to figure it out. The, the local detectives weren't. And after I got the written confession, the uh, detective who came to arrest the guy um, had been the one that had previously interviewed him. And I had gone to the sidewalk to show him the written statement, literally like looking for my mouthpiece, figuring this guy's going to be really upset that the techniques <laughs> I used were able to do this and the techniques that he used weren't. And he literally looked at me, smiled, shook my hand and said, thank you. He never would have told me. And I was like, ah, so that's, you know, yeah. that kind of stands out. Um, there were two others that are kind of related. Um, one where I had to interrogate somebody just outside New York City was alleged i don't know this to be in, in a gang um mm -hmm. and we i actually encouraged him to snitch on his brother who mm -hmm. was stealing with him and then what i enjoyed even more was there was a workplace abuse case that was actually really terrible and it all started because the two suspects who were abusing this poor victim employee accused this victim of snitching on him and that's where this whole thing started and so when i interrogated the first of the two suspects not only did he talk about how the victim was a snitch, but at the end he snitched on his co-conspirator as well. So for me, that was fun. But the one that really <laughs> sticks out and is comical is I was asked to phone rings, I guess, try to add a little context here. I'm at my desk, phone rings, says, hey, it's a Tuesday. Are you available Thursday? Which almost, the answer to that question is almost never yes. This time right. it was. They said, okay, great. We had our president of consumer marketing re retire. We're just going to do the natural bump VP to president, director to VP. We'll go hire a new director. As we're going through the process, rumors start flying that the director has been committing fraud and embezzling from the company. We, oh want, you to come, we, want, yeah, we want you to come talk to him. Roger that. We can do it. They say, okay, great. So come on out Thursday. 
said, all right, can you guys send me the investigation, anything that you found? They said, we haven't done an investigation. I said, excuse me. They said, we don't have time. Here's the deal. If you can get him to confess, we're going to fire him. If you can't, we're going to make him vice president. See you Thursday. (laughs) So I show up. Long story short, I'd rather be lucky than good. The techniques we use carry the power of the conversation. That's why we talk about, you know, the techniques, perspectives, and skills that we do. He confesses to the front. Just literally, I'm walking in to set up the room, and one of their corporate investigators taps me on the shoulders. If there's any baseball fans listening, they'll probably recognize the name. They said that they had received some autographed pictures of Jim Tomey, Hall of Fame baseball player. Oh, sure. Yeah. That they were going to auction off for charity. And the pictures were missing. Word on the street was this guy had taken them for his sons, but they had never proven it. Of course, this has happened years ago. Yeah. So, all right, fine. Well, I'll see what I can do. So after he's done confessing, we're just about to transition to the written statement part of this exercise. And I just looked at him. I said, hey, man, I really appreciate your professionalism with me today. Thank you. Can I just ask you one more question? He said, yeah. I said, how, how many days is it going to take you to bring those Jim Tomey pictures back? And his eyes get about as big as basketballs. And he looks at me and says, tomorrow. And I'll bring the Mike Dick of footballs back too. Nobody wow. knew we had the Mike Dick of footballs. Yeah. And right. so for me, there's, there's other pieces to the story that I haven't yeah. shared about their investigations team and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But for me, the comical part, not like the big win, put it on the scoreboard part, but the comical part was, A, nobody knew he had these Mike Dicker footballs, and B, he's now a guy who really started out as a bully in the beginning of the conversation, is now in a place where it's like, oh, yeah, 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 t- tomorrow, tomorrow, and these Mike Dicker footballs too. So when I say that people, you know, what I find entertaining and what other people might find entertaining are two different things, it's, it's those little moments of humor in my world that are the ones that are really the most memorable. Well, and you, when you think about that, the cognitive aspect of what we do, and it's, you know, questioning customers and, and, and spouses and other things that we've talked about may be very different than an interrogation like you just described. But at the end of the day, that person you were talking about, that director, relaxed with you, told you things that he probably had no intention of telling because of not some technique, I don't think. I mean, I think techniques help. It sounds to me because of the way you approach things, the demeanor, you've got everybody's best interest in mind. You, you've, you've created a safe environment for him to come clean. And I would guess, and I don't know that this man would ever admit this, he felt better after he got that off his chest and said, I will return these. He probably had guilt before that. And, and, and I guess the way I would sort of close this is, you know, I think people genuinely feel better when they're being honest, feel better when they're being interactive, you know, whether it's a client or, or a spouse, when you clear your cash and clearly listen to somebody, that's a term we use all the time, clear your cash. So you don't have that filter we were talking about customers having, but clear your cash and really listen to someone. You just might learn something new and you might be able to help them. This has been a lot of fun. Can you, uh, can you tell us where can people learn more about you, learn more about your company, Inquasive, um, learn more about when the, where the book's going to be available and when, uh, anything you want to close with? I appreciate that. Thank you. They can certainly find more about what we do and, and certainly experience some more content at Inquasive.com. That's I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. Mm-hmm. They can connect with me if they would like on LinkedIn at Michael Reddington CFI. And the manuscript is about to be submitted to the publisher. So look out for that book by the end of the calendar year. 
Well, why don't we do this? When that book comes out, why don't you come back and join us again? And we'll, uh, we'll talk about that and we'll give people a little promo uh, and maybe a little discount if they buy it uh, through the Ales with Aslan <laughs> website. Sure. Want to pull I that off? The opportunity. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed a little bit different spin, right? We have, we don't talk to uh, forensic uh, interviewers for, or interrogators uh, every week on the show. So this has been a lot of fun, Michael. It's been great having you. And uh, those of you listening, please get out there, subscribe to the podcast, download it, make sure you get it to your friends, enjoy the beer. And we'll see you next week on another episode of sales with Aslan. Mm-hmm.